Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person in the food industry about their challenges and successes. Today, it is my great pleasure to have as a guest a woman who has found a way to fight for a better food system while working inside a growing New York City-based restaurant group called Dig In. Her title is Director of Supply and Sustainability, which means, among other things, that she's in charge of relationships with Dig In's own farm and the other farms that supply ingredients for the mostly vegetable menu. If you want to hear from someone who is destined and determined to have an impact on farms and policy and what's on your plate in the future, you absolutely have to listen to this entire show. Taylor Lanzett and I met when I began consulting at Dig In a few months ago, and I was immediately struck by her intensity and commitment, and also because we share a mission and the same alma mater. Taylor, welcome. Thanks, Dana. <laughs> okay, I have to admit it. So I was struck by the intensity <laughs> and the intelligence, but also just a little bit about how ridiculously young and accomplished you are. Thank you. So from doing some research, I realize you have been winning prizes ever since, <laughs> at least Google tells me, you are a high school senior, which was not that long ago. Um, what was that, like seven years ago? Just about. Just yeah. about, okay. And you won for mixed media um, for environmental sciences with a windmill. So environmental sciences has been like part of your heart and mission for a long time. And I just, I need to know, because it's the life you're leading, where did that all begin? Yeah. Um, well, I think for a really long time, I actually wanted to do environmental art and thought Aha. that building and creating through art was the best way for me to have impact. So in that specific competition, I won because I created a windmill. Um, but the, you know, ever since I was growing up, I was surrounded by a family that cared about um, food and culture and building community. And it quickly became apparent to me as I um, spent more time literally with my hands in the dirt that um, food, um, and specifically growing food, was actually the connection I was going to have to environment and sort of building a better future. Okay, but uh, to me, that's like very big picture in general. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I need to get the specifics because really, this is, uh, it's so deep within you. It feels like it must have been personal. So did your family have a farm like what what were they doing were you living at a you know a hazard site I mean like, oh <laughs> it's, like it's so deep yeah yeah I definitely wasn't living I was living in the suburbs um which maybe could be part of it that I found the suburbs so deeply miserable um 
but my um my I was a latchkey kid my parents were working all the time um and you know I think my first sort of connection to food was actually just what I was going to eat as a snack when I got home and there was no one around to feed me a snack um but what'd you make it was mostly a lot of string cheese, which, <laughs> if you see me in the office, not a lot has changed. I was going to actually guess the opposite. Like, the things that I ate so much of, like frozen waffles, I, you know, that was my snack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Ready Whip, I don't eat that anymore. <laughs> um, but I actually, so I spent a lot of time um, with my mom specifically and my grandmother cooking. Um, and my, my mom's family comes from a long side of agriculture and working in food. Um, we ran bakeries and there was this whole, you know, just would spend afternoons of full Sundays just making, making food. My mom told me that when she was growing up, um, where did she grow up in Chicago? Yeah. And she would, they would, all the kids would line up so they could eat, um, handmade tortillas that my grandmother and her grand and her mother were making. Um, and so we would spend these Sundays together making massive Mexican feasts. Um, and that sort of was, I think, a good and one of the original jumping points for me of just in terms of food as community. And then something pivoted where I read some books, you know, and I was just like, wow, the connection to food and the environment was something that was not obvious. Um, and as soon as it stuck... I was literally trying to build school gardens in the um, public school district that I went to. And how old were you when you were doing that? 16, 17. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Wow. Like, I remember building gardens in my elementary school, you know, full circle, trying to teach these kids about growing food and me being a complete novice at it myself, but just trying to show someone the beauty of a sprout in the ground. That is clearly not changed <laughs> at all. No. <laughs> no. What did you read? What made that pivot? How, did, how does that light get lit? Yeah, I think it, well, it was um, Omnivore's Dilemma, um, which if I were to redo it, I would read again. But I think since then, there have been so many countless books that have come out um, that have even furthered that conversation. But when I read that, it was like the first week it was, you know, on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was the first book to really dive into something where I felt as if they painted a picture of what was wrong, but then also a lot of solutions of how it could look better. And you felt like the the school gardens is one one solution. Oh, yeah. It was at the time, it felt like the best thing I could possibly do. <laughs> now I have some other ideas, but <laughs> we'll get to those later. And the idea that, again, seems deep-seated within you of changing the world, mm -hmm. like taking it on as your mission. You were a novice. You didn't know an awful lot, but you still wanted to teach others. Where uh, does that come from? Mm, yeah. Um, I was really privileged and lucky to grow up in a family that was super loving and considerate and put um, helping others and caring about others at the forefront. And I think I learned so much from my grandmother, who taught me how to cook, but also how she was responsible for so many others, for taking care of her kids and the cousins and the grandchildren. Um, she used to send me, or my parents sent me off to Camp Grandma every summer, where it was like an immersive like culinary school and tennis camp. <laughs> how to learn how to cook everything and learn all the recipes. And um, it, I think her 
her approach towards life and she worked in nursing homes and sort of just spent her whole life helping others. Um, I just imagine that ever since I was a kid that just rubbed off on me in the most positive of ways. Another thing that really struck me, um, just looking through what you accomplished at Brown University, which is where we both went to school, though decades apart, and, <laughs> and, uh, um, and where I do believe you took far greater advantage of the education than I mm. did. Um, though I'm, you know, pleased to say I do have a diploma. That's, <laughs> that's the, that is the benefit of the pass-fail system of Brown University. But, um, but you were a highly motivated student. I mean, I'm going to read, like, not to embarrass you, but just Uh-oh. for the for the benefit of the listeners, just. Um, to give you a sense of Taylor's accomplishments. So you were a Michael John, a peer advisor, I probably mm-hmm. mangled the name, Michael John, a Jocelyn Award recipient, a college curriculum, um, part of the College Curriculum Council, a writer for Blue Stockings, part of the Sustainable Food Initiative, part of Empower, a TA um, for a community garden work. Um, you helped rewrite the Local Agricultural and Seafood Act, and I think probably the thing that you're most proud of and committed to was your work with um, Brown Market Shares. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot, Taylor. I also tried to, uh, I took advantage of the pass-fail curriculum, to say the least. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, that's great. That's what it's there for. So you can do all those things. Yeah. Um, you're clearly really um, motivated where does that motivation like is that if you're going to tell me it's back to the family we could we can skip over it but it's no it's impressive I think I specifically at a place like Brown I was surrounded by people who were also deeply motivated um and I would it would be a lie to say I'm not a little bit competitive right and so I think in moments where I was surrounded by smart driven people who were passionate to not be that way was almost like to stand out right to not be driven and passionate about something uh, just wasn't really an option. Yeah, I didn't. I'm not sure I took that. I took that route. But um, here we here we both here are, we are, which is <laughs> really where we'll start. So um, I want to just talk a little bit about the brown market shares because it feels in some way like a precursor to the work that you're uh, doing at, mm-hmm. at Dig In, where you're uh, trying to make good food accessible to all highlight um you know marginalized farmers and to tell me about brown market shares yeah so brown market shares is a student-run um campus food distribution hub and so what we really pride ourselves on is the fact that we run a csa style so community supported agriculture um style hub for students and by that i mean we take advantage of all student resources and just campus resources facilities um, volunteers um, and the general sort of like budgeting process of brown Um, and we are we send shares in the spring summer and fall to between like 400 and 600 people Um, and we do we bring in multi we bring in a diverse set of farms to that each week share. So you're not just getting one farm, but it's multiple. And the most exciting piece of what we do, and this was how it was founded, um, was there's a, there's a subsidized model um, based on the fact that we're student-run. So we can allow people of various income. So we have a low income, a middle income, and then a full share cost. So there's no financial barrier to entry. Um, 
And when we started, it was like 20, 25% of people were in the lower or middle income bracket. And by the time I left and graduated, we had grown the program to 40%. Wow. Um, that gives me shivers. That's yeah. amazing. And it was the energy that, you know, was felt on campus for this program was pretty exceptional in that I would go to parties. And I remember this one time where someone, we had just introduced a meat chair from Pat's Pastured in Rhode Island. And someone literally picked me up and hugged me and said that they had made the best roast chicken of their entire life. Um, That's so gratifying. <laughs> yeah, and I also was like, okay, you can put me down. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it was completely focused on just bringing food to campuses each week. And there has been so much work done where there are still lots of students and faculty and staff who are deeply food insecure who are exist at colleges. And the fact that you think these institutions are filled with money and endowments, but yet people are still going hungry. Um, there was there was so much motivation to at least for whatever sliver we could end that with local food and really good food. It astonishes me actually to hear that because I'm hyper aware uh, at the um, lower level schools, right? Yeah. But at college, it doesn't really occur to me. Yeah, and I was constantly we would collect all this money from you know, 400, 500 people. And I, I was like, oh my God, people are giving us almost a million dollars. Like who trusts us? You know, like I would have those moments where we all were just like, we need to, this is so serious. We can't let anyone down. You know, everyone invested in us to make this, to make this work. And the best part about the program was that we had a weekly pickup where People came and collected their two kohlrabi, their bushel of, you know, the apples, and they were leafy greens, and they would bring their friends, and they would bring, if they had families, they would bring their kids, and it just became the sort of, like, where to go on Thursday, and then you would walk around campus and see everyone with their, you know, red, like, chard, like, coming out of their backpack, and it, it was just amazing. To take over the campus in that way. With vegetables. With vegetables. Literally with vegetables. <laughs> that's, the best, that's the best kind of a takeover I can, I can imagine. Yeah. One of the things that you wrote about in uh, Blue Stocking was how uh, when, during your time mm -hmm. at Brown Market Share, it was all women run. Yeah. And that was important to you for a number of reasons. But uh, one of them was to have women in charge of the capital and moving food and investing it. And that struck me uh, because a lot of the work that you're doing is uh, good for the world, mm -hmm. right? You're, you have a hardcore nonprofit bent, but here you're handling a million dollars more, I imagine. And, um, and really at the end of the day, you're talking about women and moving capital. I just would love to hear like, what that meant to you. Yeah. Um, what the, the most important thing, I think, for me was that I was constantly surrounded by people who were making decisions about food, maybe, you know, in my experience at Brown University, who were um, men and mostly white men. And when we realized that sort of the, the most important thing we had was our team and was each other, it became really clear that what we were doing, maybe at a different scale, was going to ultimately teach us all the skills that we needed to do it at our own respective scales when we left when we left Brown, um, and I, 
you know, sort of in the most simplest terms was every time I talked to someone um, to buy food or to help me move product or to be in food, it was mostly men. And so when our team would get together and we would talk through these things, we sometimes would just talk about like, hey, I'm having a really hard time getting through to this person. And like, I just, I need help figuring out how to have this conversation. Or is it me or is this person, you know, and there was a lot of second guessing. Is this person not respecting us and our time? Um, and the fact that we had this sort of like badass lady network of, you know, women who wanted to do good, but also wanted to make it sustainable. Um, it, it was really inspiring. And what was the lesson that you took away? So how did you help each other through what must be incredibly frustrating moments of... Yeah, well, there you know, was often a lot of beer and wine. It's <laughs> all good things. I'm glad to hear there's some levity in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Know, feed the oh, campus yeah. and have the red... Beats. Lots of, yeah, lots of eggs and beers, <laughs> classic mix. Um, yeah, I think the biggest lesson was that we were all each other's biggest asset um, and that ultimately we knew that doing it right in the long run and not, um, you know, not getting frustrated um, at some other people who were still like existing in a broken model um, that we could actually be figure out a way to rebuild it. Um, and nearly everyone who I worked with works in, still works in food, which is amazing. I think it just really, you know, some people are working in food writing. Other people are doing amazing nonprofit work in D.C. with urban farming. And it just became a, wow, this is where we can all have our own voice. And what was it that you were fixing that was broken? In, for Brown, specific Brown Market Chairs? Um, we were bringing really good food to um, a campus that while some could afford it, not everyone could. And we were bringing that model. Um, but I think what we were really trying to do was build out a distribution center for food where you could easily get local and good product and have it run by people who maybe were not who you would expect to run it in the current model. Um, and by that, I mean young people, students, women, um, and we were, you know, every Thursday, 8 a.m., unloading pallets and just doing the labor and doing the manual work that um, is often overlooked, you know, for women in the food space. There was another, I'm, I'm just going to read it because it, yeah. so, it was so beautiful what you said. Um, if I can find it here. So you were just talking about, um, the question was, do you think Rainbow Chart is queer? I That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you actually answered that question, <laughs> but you answered another question, which mm -hmm. I thought was so beautifully said and relates to what you were just saying about people who are unexpected and putting together perception and reality and mm -hmm. changing perceptions. So... Um, I hope it's not weird to have yourself quoted back to yourself. You're like, I wrote that a long time ago. Let's, let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think a lot, you said, mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot about consumer psychology when I shop at farmer's markets. I wonder how often people purchase food based on what produce looks the best or who looks the best selling this. Um, by this I mean, are you more likely to buy food from a farmer who looks like you? What are the intersections of perceptions of beauty and value judgments regarding who grows the tastiest food? 
will I will I will one day be a farmer, maybe in rural America or maybe in a city. But with my short haircut, double nose piercing, is it still double? No, I lost it. You lost it, okay. <laughs> and um, but presentation, prevent someone from buying produce from me. Um, what does that mean to you now? A lot of the same. Um, I think in my work specifically at Dig In, I have found myself time and time again in a room of people who don't look like me, who are trying to make decisions. Um, and to get to the core of it, there are, um, are now more than ever lots of um, queer and marginalized people in food. Um, but what I find is often there aren't as many of them as a representation in maybe for-profit businesses or at the decision-making table. Um, and I spend a lot of my time talking to large-scale um, distributors and, you know, pro like producers of food who kind of all look the same. And they have a really hard time taking me seriously. I get called sweetie all the time, which is so painful. Um, it's also just sort of shocking because you're so direct and whatever the exponential improvement over competent is, uh, you know? Yeah. I, er, like, remember earlier this summer we were uh, trying to find a new distributor in Boston and we're interviewing all of these um, new partners and I had just come back from a bunch of farm visits. So I was in farmware, right? I was in cutoffs and boots and a t-shirt and I walk into a boardroom where there's like eight guys in suits, you know, and I was just like, oh, I forgot pants. <laughs> and all I could think was, oh, this would have gone so much better if I just had pants, not cutoffs. Um, but, you know, and it's a lot of that and it's a lot of not second guessing myself in those moments or. Um, and where does that second guessing take you? Oh, God, I go down a rabbit hole, right, of immediately thinking, oh, God, I need to learn from someone to do this, as opposed to the fact that I can figure it out and I'm smart and if I'm confident and trust myself, um, I get lots of mansplaining about how produce works all the time, um, at which point I think a lot of my team, that's when they just like sort of hear me yesing someone to death on the phone um, because thank you for explaining how to, you know, pack a pallet it's, it's news to me. Um, so a lot of that, I think, unfortunately, still resides in specifically supply chain management, which is at the core of what I do. And the more people who don't fit that mold that we can have in those rooms, that I am very optimistic that that um, way of treating people will end. I'm interested in the intersection between... Uh, you know, your um, sense of identity and not being seen. I know this is going to sound a little pop-psychish, okay. so I, I apologize for that in advance. But if it resonates, awesome, and if not, we'll move on. Uh, but this notion of, of not being seen, not being taken seriously, and some of the rescue work that you're doing, mm -hmm. right? Because I look at mm. a, a lot of the great things that you're doing around waste and rescue, and some of the greatest dishes at Dig In are made from number twos, things that would be discarded or overlooked. And you always take a second look. And in fact, you find great beauty and value in things that are inherently valuable. Yeah. Um, does that resonate at all? I love that. <laughs> that is so meta. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it could definitely be part of my subconscious, right, where I, one, because I want all of these farmers who are putting so much work and effort to make every possible dollar they can on what they grow. That's so important to me, especially as somebody who's in a position of power, as someone who can buy food. And I really, I really take that so seriously. Um, and the second is that I know how many things get tossed and overlooked, and that's, in this case, both vegetables and people. Um, so the, you know, the more that we can sell and people can realize this is tasty and it's delicious is, is incredible. Yeah, I, there's a couple of favorite dig dishes of, of mine that are really Taylor Supply specials. And we're going to take a quick break and talk about uh, Taylor Lancet's work at Dig In uh, we, when we come back. Stay with us. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and Chef de Cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. Uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Hey, welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, your host for Speaking Broadly. And on my show today, I have Taylor Lancet, who is the Director of Supply and Sustainability at Dig In, which is an amazing restaurant group in New York City and Boston area. And 
I get to say that for two reasons. One, I um, admire what Taylor's doing, but two, I've been doing some work there as well. And being on the inside of this company has been a great, great pleasure just understanding um, where the food comes from, how the chefs think about it, how people are trained at the restaurants to serve it with, with joy. The families that are created at this restaurant group are impressive. And uh, so Taylor holds the key to one piece of this puzzle, uh, which is the supply chain piece of it. And I'm interested in how the conversation, at least in my mind, has shifted over the last, I'm going to say, year, I could Mm -hmm. be wrong, from talking about farms and farmers to talking about supply chain. Mm. And I think that farms and farmers are easy in a way to get behind their people. Um, you can identify with it. There might be, you can go to a farmer's market. But in fact, what I see when I look in the future is people talking about supply chain yeah. and transparency in supply chain and how important that is and how that actually more than speaking only about farms and farmers is yeah. going to uh, change the world going forward. Can you, like, why do I think that? Like, what has lodged that in my brain now? I think for so long, people thought that talking supply chain was really unsexy. Um, And I think what you're seeing is that they're trying to bring sexy to supply supply. chain. Yeah. Yeah. It's alliterative Um, at the very least. (laughs) I, there's a a big link that when you only talk about farmers and consumers, um, you're missing. And that's often... The everything else it takes to actually move product from a farm to the consumer. Um, and what I've been most excited about is that lots of people who are beginning to enter food and or do good food work are actually trying to provide that crucial link. Um, so there's um, Annie Myers, who's in Massachusetts, and she's literally has a you know, a badass team who's sourcing and buying food all up and down New England to make it really easy for someone else in New York City to make choices about buying clean food because they take out that transportation piece. So explain that a little bit more. Uh, Annie Myers is a distribution, is a distributor of aggregated farm food. Exactly. Yeah. And so what Annie's biggest, like, priority is, is making sure that farmers can sell their food and when you're at the very tip, the northern tip of Vermont, and driving, you know, seven hours to get to New York City to sell one pallet of food doesn't really make sense. Um, Annie and her team effectively provide that, and they make it really easy based on their model. I wonder what that means for the future of farmers markets. I mean, not yeah. that anything you've said challenges that, but the, when I see the farmers turn up, I'm like, I'm happy to see farmer Keith, you know, mm-hmm. Keith's organics. Like mm-hmm. that's delightful to me, but I'm also thinking, Oh my gosh, you got up at four in the morning. You gave up your work day. You're selling here. You're a personality. That's great. But wow, this is such a commitment to be in these markets yeah. or to um, employ people at the markets yeah. where you're lessening your margin. I mean, do you think that there's a potential solution that changes the farmer's market? Yeah, I mean, I think farmer's markets are like super romantic and a great way to spend your Saturday morning. But to assume that everyone has access to them, right, that they're in a location that's walking distance, that they can make the time because they're not working then. Um, I think markets 
sort of solidified that, at least in this country, there is interest in this food, right? There's demand for markets. They boomed over the last decade um, pretty in a pretty amazing rate. And the second part that they've solidified is that um, everyone should have access to this type of food, regardless of their income and the work that NYC and others have done with the Fresh Bucks program have made it um, really easy to not make farmers markets only for wealthy people. Um, so in, in my head, they've they've like solidified the concept that people want this food, but the where we're heading towards, I you know it's grocery stores and it's corner stores being able to stock this right to make it really easy for someone who only has 30 minutes to go grocery shopping because they are taking care of maybe kids at home or, you know, they don't have child support and to be able to walk into a bodega and buy Keats Organics, that would be amazing, right? To just have distribution models set up where it's just, it makes just as much sense for that that reseller to, to make that decision. How do we make that happen? God, we need we need some more hours in the day. I think. <laughs> <laughs> because that does sound like obviously that tackles one of the issues of um, you know food availability. I know food deserts is not mm-hmm. um, not really a good term because it's a it's confusing. Yeah, but for there to be farm fresh food available on every corner, yeah. or you know, in um, a machine setting like you. You know, you put your oh, yeah. money into uh, like an automat and you get fresh food out. Like yeah. that would be an extraordinary future. Totally. And even I think that some of the work that um, the rooftop farms and urban farms are doing, while I fundamentally know that at that scale, you know, they can't feed a city of 8 million, they are normalizing what it means to see food growing. And I think that that's something that they play an important part where. You know, maybe their basil then cost $15 a pound. But, you know, the more people that can turn their corner and see a farm and be like, oh, that belongs here in this crazy city, I think is a really good thing. I love, you know, it does all connect and not to be so meta, but you do need to have visual representation of things like farms where you come across them in cities or yeah. people who are not white old men. Yeah. Um, you know, running distribution in order to uh, change our future. Yeah. And, and certainly to have plots given over to growing things mm-hmm. uh, can only be good. Yeah. I mean, if you see someone who you feel either maybe looks like you or has a similar background than you and they're doing something where maybe you didn't think you can do that and they're doing it really well and they're happy it just makes it so much easier to then do that yourself. I love happy being part of the equation is I'm spending a lot of time right now thinking about um, who's visible Mm -hmm. and who's invisible, what's visible and what's invisible. Those are sort of binary choices. But I think adding in the notion of it brings you joy. It's not just that it exists, right? But that it's um, a way to live your life. That's, something important to add into the equation is not just that it can be done, but that it's a good life mm-hmm. when you do that. Yeah. At Dig In, you're responsible for literally a mi- well millions of dollars and millions of pounds of food. Yeah. Uh, and I really love the way you think about how you 
invest the power of those dollars to make the most, not only for the dig customer at the end of the day, which is extremely important and dig the business, but the farmers of dig and the choices that you make in finding uh, your farms and farmers. Can you talk about your farm search process and where you land? Yeah. So I find farmers through a variety of methods. Um, Most recently, I've adopted finding farmers on Instagram, which (laughs) is like so millennial. I can't. I mean, Taylor, this is another reason. (gasps) Taylor, people who are listening, is somewhat social media averse. But you just gave us the best reason of why you have to be there. I know. I literally DM people and I'm like, oh my God, your pea shoots are look amazing. Can you call <laughs> me at this number? Like, you know, Taylor. <laughs> um, but that, I also love, you know, the network and farmers that we already work with. We work with about 60 people over the course of a year. I am on the phone with them all the time, right? And my number, hey, how's it going? How are you guys doing? What's new? How's the family? You know, how's that new greenhouse that you built? And then I'll often say, like, I'm looking for something. I'm looking for radishes. Like, do you know anyone, right? And so many relationships are just, oh, yeah, yeah, the person down the street does that. Or, oh, actually, I think this person might be interested in helping. Let let me give them a call. Um, so that, and then the other thing that I love doing, and this goes back to my love for farmers markets, but I go to the market and I talk to people and I introduce myself and meeting growers who we then work with at the farmers market is a really, it's not only special, but it it just really sort of for me solidifies exactly what we're trying to do, which is we lead by building relationships and that's how we win. And that's how we're really good at building a supply chain because we care about, all these people involved. But you also care about the people and including being inclusive. Yeah. Uh, I was fascinated when you said that you're, you find farmers who are young and you find farmers who are old. You don't find too many who are in between. Yeah. And um, you also have found farmers who kind of look like you, which is a beautiful thing. Because you talk about like, you know, supporting marginalized farmers. That must be, just imagine being a farmer, which is the hardest job in the entire world. You've, like, given your life over to, you know, nature. Yeah. And fickle markets. And um, and then you're double marginalized. Yeah. I, I often think I have a hard enough time as a buyer for a large restaurant group working with some of these old school systems and people who have a hard time taking me seriously. So then I think, all right, if there is a queer or non-binary farmer who's trying to sell product and they are maybe have expensive product, right? Or they maybe not everything's perfect. It's not washed, right? All these things that make it really hard to be a farmer. And I think, oh God, they're going to have an even harder time getting through to this, like that other side. So any time where I can just say, you don't have to worry about them. You can just work with me. And I want to know what your challenges are and how you think and what you care about. It's, you know, that's it. That's the goal. But it's also, as we've said, like these lots of farmers who are in marginalized spaces are underrepresented and you can't just like Google it. Right. Yeah. It takes a <laughs> lot of work to build um, these relationships and find these people who, um, you know, aren't the ones who are like featured on every Whole Foods board. You're great at discovering them. And you're also great at, uh, you know, working with 
food that would have otherwise gone to it. So my so this is now mm-hmm. to my favorite foods. So um, I love a big sweet potato. I mean, I love a sweet potato. And I thought that I didn't love a big sweet potato because I assumed that it, if there was a sweet potato that was the size of my head, that it would be filled with water or, it, you know, it wouldn't be as sweet or it would be tough. Like I made a lot of assumptions about this large head-sized sweet potato. Um, as it happens, the Diggin founder, Adam Eskin, his spirit vegetable is a sweet potato. And um, Diggin does amazing things with sweet potatoes. So how do you have the confidence to buy those number twos? And how often do you buy them? And what is what is a number two? Yeah, so a number two, um, as we like to call it in the biz, um, is really just anything that is not... Um, maybe is bent, is imperfect, is blemished. I always say cosmetically challenged. That's sort of my, the way I, I sort these out. Um, or maybe something that um, is unsized, um, something that fell off a top, right? Like radishes. Think about how often you buy them by the bunch with the greens. Anytime a radish falls off that green top, it like often gets discarded. Um, so that's that's the number two. And then at dig in, we focus a lot on sourcing those. Um, one, because they're just as delicious, um, and we always lead with delicious. Um, but two, lots of farmers and growers, you know, you can spend, if you grow on 20 acres of potatoes and five acres are maybe crooked or blemished, that's all of that time and energy that you'll never reap the benefits from, and people aren't going to enjoy your food. Um, so we focus a lot on sourcing that for the farmer's sake and really being able to provide a market for them. Um, and I often think that when we do things like that and we become uh, a partner who is lenient and can take these products, we become that sort of premier partner to work with, right? Which is that we, we're, we're able to be flexible and nimble and we care enough to sort of talk about what it means to buy product that's not perfect. Uh, last summer, we had a dish called Broccoli Three Ways on the menu, and that dish had broccoli crowns, broccoli leaf, and broccoli stem. And we were with some of our growers in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, walking the fields, looking at broccoli plants, and when you harvest a broccoli crown, that's it. One, one crown, and then the plant's done. So we literally with like cutting like knives in our hands we're bunching leaves and talking about which leaves to pick from the plant which leaves you know to leave based on their size and then we were talking about how much stem to cut off and within that walkthrough alone we literally developed two new skews if you will for them to sell us and things where they were like this actually works for us we we can we can harvest this and we can pack it and this makes sense and we can make extra money and we have enough labor and all of these other considerations that go into packing and selling food. And I think the other thing that you did by taking that walk with them is you used that experience we were talking about at the very top of the show, which is cooking with your grandmother Mm -hmm. and you know, you are cooking in the field because you look at that and you say, we don't need to waste this. We can actually make something completely delicious from things that other people would discard. And the thing that's about to go on the menu is um, a rescued vegetable salad, which is so beautiful. What What's going into the rescued vegetable salad? Yeah, so this dish is all inspired from um, 
April being the cruelest month <laughs> in farming, which is that, um, you know, everyone is trying to get rid of their storage crops and, you know, they are planning for, for May and June. But what lots of people don't realize is in, in farming world, um, June is really spring. So all the consumers are ready for spring right now because spring has happened. But most farmers, when they talk about spring crops, they're, they're two months you know, behind us. Um, but so this salad is really designed that we are buying week over week an assortment of um, things that have fallen to the bottom of the bin. And by that, I mean all of the jumbo rutabagas that are at the that have been sold, hopefully, over the course of the past couple months now remains at the bottom of the bin. The rutabaga that's scarred, that's cracked, um, that's, you know, really small. And we are just having right now it's about like eight or nine farmers just sending us an assortment of what they have. And we're then going to make this delicious um, thinly sliced mandolin salad with all of this raw vegetable and then mixed with baby kale and it's incredible i just love that it's like the bottom of the bin like it's such a it's such a beautiful image because you know exactly what that looks like yeah and that as a consumer you do but you as a food person know that it doesn't taste any different Mm -hmm. and this uh the superficial you're able in the job that you have to overcome superficial perceptions because cooking is so transformative and in this case shaving is transformative and to be able to invest um, the power of uh, your passion and dollars to transform something that would really be chucked into something that can be enjoyed is uh, awesome so you were talking earlier about how in the terms of second guessing yourself, sometimes you'll think, do I need a mentor to teach me this? Do I need uh, someone to show me the way? Like, Or can I just learn this myself? I imagine, though there's no exact mentor for you, there isn't someone doing precisely what you're doing, because in fact, what you're doing, you're inventing it as you go along. There aren't a lot of amazing companies like Digin. Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of supply chain and sustainability built into um, large companies. But there probably are people whose uh, values align with yours and whose work has inspired you. Who would those people be? Wow. Um, the, the first person I think that comes to mind in terms of inspiring me to do the work that often feels even bigger than dig in um, would be Soul Fire Farm in New York. Um, Leah Petterman and her team are working to... Um, allow marginalized farmers, people of color, queer identifying people to learn how to grow and feel grow food and feel community in a space that's really supportive. Um, and they're working to end um, racial injustice and, you know, really trying to make it so that if you are a person of color, farming is a really exciting field to go into and it's something that with with fewer mentors to look up to you can still achieve it and when you look into the future because at uh, you know at brown when you're just thinking like one day i'll be a farmer mm-hmm. whether it's rural whether it's city now your your hands are in the dirt and you are working with farmers 
you've also done things like writing legislation. You're, you've had so many um, different ways to tap into this world of food and changing the food system. When you look out, what is it that you see for yourself? Mm, I definitely feel the itch to start my own thing at some point. Um, I'm not sure if that would be a farm or a um, maybe a you know a, a maker of sorts. Um, there's lots of family recipes that I think need to be uh, blown up and scaled up, which I'm really really interested in. Um, but I yeah like there's no way I can imagine not being involved in food in the foreseeable future. And the most important thing for me right now is figuring out how I can learn from others um, and also help others who want to do supply because I want there to be an amazing network of people, um, specifically women, queer women, um, who can look up and be like, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, there's lots of people doing this and I just need to ask them all for advice. That is a beautiful vision. And with that, I'm con going to conclude this week's episode of Speaking Broadly. I want to thank you, Taylor, for coming and spending some time with me and not in the supply center <laughs> or on the phone with farmers, which I know is it's actually like hard to take a chunk out of your day. And uh, engineer David Tatashore, thank you, as always. And Carlin Thompson, my great right hand and left, I think, in the case of speaking broadly. Uh, you know where to find me uh, at FW Scout on Insta and Twitter. Please send me questions, suggestions, critiques. I always love hearing from people. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.